Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Canon Thinks Podcast. Today, I have my cousin on. His name is Nick Bassett. Welcome to the show, Nick. And can you start off just by talking a little bit about yourself, introducing yourself, and uh, tell us a little bit about your job? Hi, yeah, my name is Nick Bassett. I um, currently am employed by a company called Castell, which is a wholly owned subsidiary of Intermountain Healthcare. Um, and uh, it's a company that Intermountain launched uh, about eight months ago. Um, really to be focused on um, helping organizations uh, transition from what we call kind of traditional fee-for-service um, healthcare to, uh, to what we call value-based healthcare, which is kind of a, an incentive, a change in incentive for providers that I'm sure we'll talk some about today. Um, but uh, anyway, I've, I've been um, with Intermountain or one of its subsidiaries for uh, a little over a decade and, and uh, worked in various roles that have a background in uh, finance and, uh, and have done lots of different um, kind of finance and operational related roles, uh, again, over the, the past uh, decade or so. So anyway, that's just a little bit about where I've been and, and what I do. Perfect. So what's your job title with them? So, yeah, my job title is the Vice President of Population Health Services in Castell. So you focus more on the financial end of things? So, yeah, I I definitely, uh, again, my background really is in understanding both hospital finances as well as um, kind of uh, the, the what I would call the flow of funds through the healthcare system, kind of healthcare economics. Um, but, uh, but I've, I've done a number of operational uh, roles as well, working with physicians and other clinicians, um, in, in various capacities. Gotcha. Okay. So how has the healthcare system changed since you started in your job a decade ago to now? You know, that's, that's a, a great question. Um, so, um, back in, um, Let's see, it would have been 2008 when I very first started, which was obviously a really interesting time to begin working in healthcare. Um, uh, m- most organizations, um, uh, healthcare organizations, whether hospitals or physician groups, were almost entirely um, compensated through what uh, in healthcare we refer to as fee-for-service contracts. And essentially what that means is that um, that the, the uh, healthcare system's incentive was driven almost entirely by volume. The more that you do, the more, the more you get paid. And it honestly, it was not long after I, I uh, started my career that... Um, really active conversations at a national level uh, back in DC, um, as well as kind of in the, in the private sector um, with, um, with, with lots of healthcare organizations began to talk about how expensive healthcare was. Um, and, um, and, and again, not long after kind of my, me starting in 2008 um, did we really kind of get into the, the whole um, Accountable Care Act and, and Obamacare, as we referred to it uh, as. Um, and, and so, again, kind of the, the cost of hair care and the accessibility of care really hitting um, center stage. And so, um, you know, those first couple of years, I would say, was really as the conversation was just starting. And then, you know, the last eight or so years, again, have been very, very filled with, with um, organizations trying to learn how to, how to provide better care, more accessible care, but do it in a way that, that doesn't bankrupt households, that doesn't bankrupt our country, uh, etc. It seems like that work must be really slow then, because a lot of the numbers that you see, it's like the U.S. spends so much more money on healthcare than other countries. It, it absolutely is. And I, I'll, I'll get my numbers wrong here probably, but, but uh, you know, it's it conceptually, yeah, I think we're upwards of 20% of, of GDP right now, healthcare dollars are. And, uh, and, and I, I don't know off the top of my head comparable um, numbers for other countries uh, other than to say significantly lower. 
Um, and, and it's interesting, um, and again, I apologize, I don't have the data here in front of me, but if, if as you go through and compare American healthcare to other countries' healthcare, what you find is that um, uh, we, we aren't necessarily uh, getting what we pay for. And there are a lot of different ways to, to look at that, and maybe we'll get into some of that in our conversation today. But if we strictly look at you know, so, some measures like, uh, you know, lifespan and, um, and, uh, and, and compare that to, you know, total cost of, of care for a, for a person. Um, yeah, we definitely are an outlier on almost every, on almost every chart that you see comparing us to other countries in the world, which is interesting and certainly something that fuels the, the discussion and conversation uh, about healthcare. Yeah, I just pulled up the numbers here. Looks like from 2013, we spend 17% of our GDP on healthcare. And then the next closest one is France at 11. And then a bunch of other countries around 10 or 11%. Yeah. Yep. So pretty wild. And if you were to, if you were to pull up and look at, again, kind of life expectancy in those same countries and a number of other quality metrics, what you find is while we may be slightly better or marginally better, um, we're not always better. Um, and in fact, in many cases, we actually do worse. And, um, and, and I, I think there are a lot of contributing factors to that. Um, uh, we, we in America do very good at rescue medicine. So, so I think, you know, in the midst of maybe being critical of that one data point, um, you know, if we look at, um, you know, the world's finest um, medical schools and, and, and doctors and, and um, kind of research that's being done extensively around various diseases, we do see a lot of that coming from America and, and largely because of, of the, you know, um, the, the way money flows through the system uh, in America. And so we do very good at leading out in, in research. Um, we do good at, uh, at what I would consider kind of rescue medicine. Um, so, you know, finding unbelievable ways to, to keep people alive and, and save people from, from uh, you know, tragic accidents and things like that. Um, but, but, you know, kind of on a, on a personal note, um, and, and there are lots of varying opinions about that, uh, you know, that sometimes that's not always um, uh, it, it's hard to really put a price tag on, on the value that, that uh, we sometimes see coming from those things. And so anyway, it, it definitely interesting, though, the differences that we see between countries. So it almost sounds like because our healthcare system is fueled by capitalism, that really does encourage companies and firms to really push for the best modern medicine that they can make coming at the cost of, oh, well, they're how much they charge can be unchecked. Yeah. It, I, yeah. And I think the charge question actually gets into a, a different uh, kind of part of the discussion, but, but definitely um, we, we see some amazing things coming from, from our American healthcare system, but we definitely um, see a lot of shortcomings that, that result from that. And, and one of which is ultimately that the cost that we all bear uh, as a country, whether uh, whether we are our, our healthcare is covered or not, and whether it's covered through uh, you know a, a state or federal program or or through a you know private or commercial insurance company, um, we we do all bear that cost in some regards. Yeah, it's interesting because I so I'm on my parents' plan still for healthcare, but I'm pretty discouraged about going and just getting basic healthcare things because. Either if you have to stay in network and you might not get the best doctor or it's just so expensive, even with insurance, that sometimes that just alone just kind of makes me not want to do stuff. Yeah. And, and I don't think you're alone in feeling that way, um, which which is part of which is part of what fuels the problem in, in many respects is um, is when people can't afford health care. We see that sometimes they'll put off getting care that might um uh, while it might cost some upfront, can often prevent, you know, extensive or, or much higher costs down the road. And so, you know, being in a position where, um, where, where people are not able to get access to, to the healthcare they need definitely can present some problems for sure. So what happened to the cost? Because, I mean, just compared to a lot of other countries, everything costs a lot more money here. 
So what happened? Is there like a law or something? So, um, you know, I, I, I can't purport to, to actually really know the answer or all of the answers. And I don't think it's just any one thing um, that, that drives the cost up. So I, I guess I should kind of say that out of the shoot. You'll okay. get a lot of my you'll get a lot of my opinions and thoughts today. I, uh, while I feel knowledgeable on the topic there, it, it's it's unbelievably complex um, because of how um, intrinsically uh, connected it is with um, with policy related um, conversations as well as private conversations and, and the and um, and just the, the public market. Um, but you know if, if we want to talk about the cost of healthcare, um, there's there's a few things that I would point to. Um, and, and I think to start, um, it, it's it's helpful to really understand, the key players in healthcare. Um, and, and so kind of at its, at its basic level, right? If we kind of talk about healthcare 101 here for a minute, um, you've got, uh, generally speaking, a health insurance company, which is either a private, uh, some kind of private insurance company or, um, or some kind of federally or locally funded uh, insurance like Medicare or Medicaid being kind of the two most, uh, you know, uh, uh, common. Uh, and then you've got obviously what what I'll call for, and 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 I'll refer to those throughout this conversation as payers, uh, the, the, someone paying for the majority of someone else's healthcare. And then you've got uh, providers. Okay, so a provider. And think of that as anyone who is providing care. We most frequently think of a provider as a physician, maybe a hospital, um, but in that I would include, you know, pharmacy or medications, um, you know, any any kind of form of providing care as being a, a, obviously a, another huge and really important player in this space. And then the last one, of course, is the patient that, that sits between um, kind of those two things. The patient needs healthcare, and they need healthcare paid for. And um, and so as we as we start to try to unpack what is it that makes healthcare so uh, so expensive, I think there's a few things that are that are worth uh, calling out. Um, the first, and it's hard to ignore this one, and this is um, obviously you know a, a discussion at a national level is um, is the cost of pharmaceuticals. So, you know, first, and, and back to, you know, a comment I made earlier um, in this discussion, it, it, you know, the, the, the discoveries that we have made and the things that we can do in modern medicine today are unbelievable. Um, you know, things that people, you know, only decades ago truly couldn't have dreamed of um, that, that we uh, that we have figured out and solved for. So I, I do need to start there and acknowledge uh, the amazing things that, that research and, and, um, and providers have done. That said, as, as we look at the cost of medications and, um, and the way that it's regulated, and, and I'm definitely not an expert in the regulatory space on this subject, but just at its base you know, level, pharmaceutical costs are, are just astronomically high and the rates that they charge are, are unbelievably high. And so what you see happening across the industry are actually some really neat and innovative ways to, to help control those costs. Uh, uh, one example of that is a, is a company called Civica RX that was launched a couple of years ago by a consortium of, of large healthcare organizations um, who frankly were fed up with uh, the limited access and the uncontrolled cost of some very common medications, and they essentially came together and said, "We're we're going to figure out how to how to um, make generics, basically, and control for the access and costs. And and we as providers, as hospitals, have every incentive to keep those costs down so that we can run our business, so that healthcare can be affordable. And uh, and, and so I think you're starting to see some some really interesting market solutions pop up." To help combat some of those uh, those rising costs um, in pharmaceuticals. So so anyway, not to get too far down that path, but that's one thing. The other thing, just again back to your question of you know what is it that makes healthcare so expensive, 
is, is you do have to look at the incentive. And, and you heard me talk earlier about fee-for-service and fee-for-value medicine. Mm-hmm. And in a fee-for-service world, you know, this is no fault of, of any provider organization. It's the economic environment they live in incentivizes doing more. Um, frankly, in, in some cases, regardless, in fact, many cases, regardless of the cost, if you were to talk to uh, any provider group, you know, even just 10 or, or at least for sure 20 years ago about the cost of something and how much something costs, um, it was almost, you know, like, you know, um, heresy. It was like, no, we don't talk, cost should not factor into at all the equation when we're, you know, caring for a patient, which, you know, at face value, I think feels right and makes a lot of sense. But the reality is we as consumers, our experience is as tied to the cost that we are paying as it is whether something was quality or not, which frankly, we have a pretty hard time knowing in healthcare whether something was really quality. Someone was nice to us. Oftentimes, that, that, that's as much a, a definition of our experience of quality. So, uh, so anyway, that incentive to just do more regardless of cost, I think is part of what really catapulted um, American healthcare to cost the way that it, that it did, which is really part of what we're trying to, to adjust for now as, as a country and, and, and again in this fee-for-value world that, that I've talked about, is, is connecting the incentive to providers to not only provide high-quality care, but find a way to, to connect that cost part of the equation to keep that in check and create a little bit of balance. Do you think the government needs to be more involved in reducing the price of the healthcare? Yeah, that's, that, that is a, that's a tough question. Um, you know, it, I have to believe that, that the market, um, in most cases is able to solve for problems like this. And, and I think as is often the case, the question is how quickly is the market going to be able to figure out how to, to solve for some of the controlled pricing? And so I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd take a strong position one way or another, other than to acknowledge it's definitely a complex situation, and there are definitely benefits that that would come from you know kind of a a, a, a body stepping in to control that pricing. Um, but but that is also fraught with all sorts of things that may may lead to outcomes that nobody wants, related to costs, related to access, etc. And so, it, it, it's a tough question, and, and not to to dodge taking a strong position on it. But it, it really is a complex uh, complex kind of issue that that isn't just a well yes or a no. Um, I think there's a lot of kind of layers to the onion to understand what the what the right role of government should be in helping determine some of that pricing. It's funny you uh, you talk about how complex it is and that you you aren't giving strong answers necessarily to this because just in the current like political climate, it seems like people are because you're you're kind of the expert in this or this is what you do for a living and there's so many people out there who just don't know anything about this and take really really strong positions on like okay we need single payer healthcare, or we need this, or we need that. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Even our experts here are like, recognize how complex the problem is. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's interesting that you say that. And, and in fact, um, there's a really famous surgeon um, and author um, named Atul Gawande, um, who, um, who writes for the New Yorker, or at least used to write for the New Yorker. I think he uh, he's leading a, a large a large employer kind of healthcare uh, uh, strategy uh, b- between uh, uh, who is it uh, the anyway Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan Chase, and uh, and I'm um, in Amazon. I think gosh, it's been a long time since I've thought about. It. But anyway, a tool go on day, and and he actually wrote a, a really interesting piece a few years ago that talk about um, the complexity um, of healthcare. And, and, he, and he basically, you know, goes into the fact that he talks about there are simple problems in life and there are complex problems. And simple problems are those that you can take the problem, you can look at it, you can derive a solution with a really clear, simple outcome. If I do this, then this will happen. And then he talks about complex problems, you know, being, you know, 
whatever you decide to do, you will have some good effect in some way, and you will likely have some negative effect another way. There's not necessarily a right answer for everyone or for the problem. And, and he talks about how and why healthcare is a complex problem. And, and we can kind of squeeze the balloon here, but it's going to pop out somewhere else. And we can squeeze that mm. part and it's going to come out a, a different angle. Um, you know, the, the one, um, and, and this is a little bit of a, a bold statement uh, with some generalizations involved. I, I acknowledge that as I make it, but th th there is one solution in healthcare. And that one solution is, um, is health, right? It, it, when we are healthy, um, you know, we don't use healthcare. It doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't cost the system anything. It doesn't, doesn't cost our country anything. When we are healthy, uh, we are naturally, we don't deal with that. Now, accidents happen. Uh, cancer is, is never, you know, wanted. It, it's, uh, you know, always creeps up on people. So that, that's not to say that disease and, and problems won't arise. But if you look at, and I'll just give you one example, if you look at where we spend our healthcare dollar right now, and, and I won't have exact numbers, but but I'll, I'll give you some generalizations here. We um, we actually spend more on, on diabetes than, and diabetes related health issues than um, in, in most populations, any, anything else, or at least almost anything else. There may be a couple kind of close, um, close diagnoses. But the thing about diabetes and many related conditions is these are lifestyle related things. It meaning, meaning if, if, you know, if we took better care of our bodies, if we ate healthier, if we uh, didn't stress ourselves out and overwork ourselves, if we didn't, uh, you know, if we had better access to, and, and in America, we have the best access to healthy food, right? All these things, if we actually took care of our bodies, that's, that, that's actually the one thing that we, that we can do, barring, right, un, unforeseen, unexpected things that do come up and, and would warrant, uh, you know, relatively high cost interventions. But, but I, I think that's such an important point to bring up here is so much of, of what we see and are dealing with in healthcare is in some regards related to the lifestyle that we live and the diets that we, you know, that we eat and, and that sort of thing. Mm. So ha maybe having more preventative maintenance on our bodies could definitely help with some of those big costs. Yeah, I, I think so. And I, I think it's I think it's preventative. Um, I, I think I'd maybe choose a different word, though, Ken, and I'd even say maybe cultural. Um, mm. There was a there was a really interesting I think it was National Geographic. Um, apologize if I'm getting that the citation wrong here, but I think it was National Geographic did a did a study. Um, gosh, this was probably a decade or, or more ago um, on uh, they called them we call them the blue zones. And what it was is there's these pockets um, all over the world, not concentrated in any one country, not concentrated in, you know, in any hemisphere, you know, or something like that, or latitude, longitude, whatever. Um, these pockets of people where, um, where people live to be 100 or more, you know, um, statistically significantly more than surrounding communities. And so they went in and they basically did this whole evaluation of why, what, what do these different blue zones have in common? And, and um, so anyway, worth going and checking out for sure. But, but a lot of what it highlights is just the culture, the way these people function, the diet that they, you know, many of them live, you know, very much off of Mediterranean and plant-based diets, for example. Um, they're not as time driven as we are in kind of fast paced American culture, right? Um, they socialize a lot. They're very well connected, right? They go to similar churches or they, you know, they're, they're small communities with people who socialize. And so, you know, arguably uh, manageable stress levels. Anyway, those kinds of things that are just overall culture related items. Um, all play a factor in, in our health. Um, and, um, and so I, you know, can, can we or the government or anyone change that culture overnight? Absolutely not. And, and it's really, you know, 
uh, individual decisions that we all make every day about what to eat. Am I going to go for a walk? Am I taking time to kind of relax and, and be with family or friends or whatever? All of those things make a difference in our overall health. And all of that contributes to the cost of healthcare that we, you know, that we're staring down the barrel of. Yeah. And it's definitely, see, the thing is that I'm thinking of while you're saying that is the fact that our whole culture is built around advertising and showing kind of living lavishly. And that comes with like eating fast food to playing video games or like sitting, spending a lot of time sitting, you would have to change everything about our country to really be like that. So I don't know if, I mean, I guess you could do that on an individual level, but especially if you don't have a lot of money, that can be really difficult to do to even have a healthy diet where you eat fish or a lot of vegetables or whatnot. Yeah. Yep, it is. And and you're right. It's it's not necessarily what's popular. It's not what our friends do. You know, we're whether we like to admit it or not, right? We are creatures of habit and the food that we grew up eating is the food that we're gonna eat. And and the you know, and the way we, you know, spend our evenings, you know, uh scooping a bowl of ice cream or, or cooking popcorn and sitting down and watching a movie, right. As opposed to going out and taking a walk and getting some fresh air. I mean, these are all kind of little things and, and, and we're just, we, we are a, a product of our culture. And I think it takes, um, you know, strong will and, and not just knowing that we should do it. It's funny because I'm sure most people know I should go out for a walk in the evening, not plop down and watch TV and yet we all are, are kind of a product of, of how we were raised and we're creatures of habit. And, um, and breaking that is not something that, uh, that happens overnight, but is a, you know, it's part of the life journey that I think we're all on here is, is learning how to, uh, how to develop good habits and, and again, caring for our bodies, I think is just such an important part of that. So anyway. So let's say you take your evening walk and you get hit by a car and it's no one's really fault at fault, but you have a broken leg and it costs like $10,000 or something to get that leg fixed. How does that compare with other countries? Like, are there any countries you could just go to and get that leg fixed for free? Yeah. You know, I, th there probably are like I, um, and again, I, I apologize. I'm not an expert on, on other countries, healthcare systems. I know Canada is one that, that we hear about and hear frequently referenced, um, with kind of a national healthcare system. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, understandably you would pay higher taxes to, to have that kind of access to, to healthcare. And I think the question that would linger heavy in my mind in that environment is what sort of access um, do, do you have, meaning how soon could you get in um, if, if it weren't, you know, a, a, you know, a life uh, saving emergency, what sort of access do you have? And, and then I would also say, what sort of experience would you have? Um, and, uh, and, and to me, those are just, those are, unknowns that are hard to predict what it would ultimately look like. And back to our, our discussion about, you know, the complexity of this problem. Um, you know, I think uh, it's, it's, it's hard to know what it might be like somewhere else. It might be a great experience. It might be slow and drawn out and a poor experience. You know, I, I really don't know. Um, let's say you could change one thing about our healthcare system with, as little consequences as possible. Like, I don't know if you were the president or something and you could just sign an executive order to fix one thing. What would that be? Oh, wow. That is a good question. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, a couple of things come to mind. And so I'm, I'm going to give you a long answer, Canon. Sorry. Um, Perfect. Cause I, I, uh, you know, one of the things that, um, that, that I, I have to make sure we bring up at some point in this podcast is, um, is COVID-19. And, um, you know, COVID-19 has, uh, has this pandemic has really rocked the world, not just our country, certainly not just the healthcare industry, you know, virtually all industries, all communities, it's kind of rocked it to its core. And what's interesting to me is, is if you look at what has happened um, in COVID-19, there, there are silver linings 
all over, right? And, and I don't mean to be insensitive and set aside the tragedy that we've seen in, in communities across the world and, and, and the tragic loss that we've seen all over. So I, I should acknowledge that, but I'm going to set that aside for a minute here. And I want to talk a little bit about what we've seen in healthcare through this crisis. Um, you know, as a result of this, we have seen lots of um, waivers come from um, uh, federal and local agencies, allowing for uh, us to do some things, us in healthcare to, to do some things and function in ways that normally would not be permitted. They, they, they wouldn't be compliant. We wouldn't be able to bill. And I'm going to give you a couple examples. Um, you know, one of those examples is the way we leverage um, telehealth. And by telehealth, I just mean the ability to pick up a phone or a computer that has a camera on it and, and call, a health, call a healthcare provider. Now, many of us think of that, and, and I think before COVID, it was this really like, really? You know, what's that going to do? All I'm going to do is talk to my provider. How are they going to help me? Now, granted, they're not going to do surgery over telehealth. I, I get that. If, if, it's, if it's a surgical intervention or something like it, it's not going to help. But for lots of medical-related issues, we're actually amazed. It's been amazing to watch as, as you know, millions of people have begun to use this. And as providers, as the regulations around providers have loosened up around how they can use telehealth, what they can use it for, and, and still allowing them to bill and, and be compensated for it, we have seen this like unbelievable shift to to using healthcare thanks to uh, uh, using telehealth excuse me thanks to some of the waivers that have come out now um you know that uh, along with you know a host of all sorts of things that we've been able to do so we think about providing care in patients homes for example that that being another venue or setting of care where you know historically we've really had to uh, lean on hospitals and hospital systems and going to the hospital or frankly, even going to the clinic and recognizing the opportunity that exists in a patient's home where previously, you know, very, very strict regulatory requirements. Now, the regulatory requirements are in place for a good reason. Again, and, and you're going to hear me harken back to the complexity of all of this. But, you know, if I'm king for a day, if, if I'm looking at, at kind of what I think really kind of plagues the healthcare system, um, it, it really gets back to um, just how slow moving we are at, 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 at making changes and adopting to changes. So mm -hmm. um, if we could adopt telehealth more broadly, for example, um, it's much lower cost. It's much easier access. Um, I know it's not culturally the way we think about leveraging healthcare, but it's unbelievable what we can do through a, 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 a medium like that. And so, um, you know, I, I guess that, that's the one that's top of mind today. I, I, I may kick myself later thinking about uh, some other great <laughs> thing that would have a far, far reaching impact, but the idea of being able to, to be more nimble in how and where we provide care, I think presents lots of really exciting opportunities. So basically get rid of the bureaucracy of it all. Yeah, I, I think the bureaucracy definitely ties into it, um, but a lot of it's cultural too. Uh, it, you know, so we've talked a lot about bureaucracy and culture today, which are all parts of what plague us. Um, you know, some of it is just culturally people, the idea of talking to a doctor on the phone and, and that being sufficient feels really foreign and, and, you know, insufficient when in reality for a lot of things, it's fine, but, uh, but people just we're accustomed to, I've got to go to the doctor. I'm going to the, the I go to the doctor, you know, that, that mentality that we have, uh, you know, I think is, is part of it as well, but, but anyway, yes. Yeah. It definitely seems like even just telehealth would be a better way because then you could probably get through a lot more appointments. If you were a doctor, if you were just doing phone calls rather than having somebody check in and fill out all the paperwork and then waiting there and then, like just going through all that and having to actually go to work, maybe you could do that from home instead. Well, yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean, all of those reasons that the convenience, the time of day that, you know, for me to, to take a half a day off to, to go see my doctor when really what I need is a 20 minute conversation about, you know, something that, that I've experienced or something going on. Right. Um, why would I take off a half a day to figure out how I'm going to, you know, make it down to my doctor's office and sit and wait there for 20 minutes and go through the whole, you know, kind of experience when 
hey, I've got a relatively quick question and, and I want you to look at something, you know, or whatever it is. Um, anyway, the opportunity exists. And, and I think we're, we're on a track. I think COVID has taught us that, uh, that we need to leverage that platform a lot more than we have. Do you think that, so I don't know if you know much about this, but Elon Musk um, was, he was talking about, this is like a couple weeks ago, he, he was under the impression that our COVID numbers are super, super high compared to what they actually should be because hospitals are being incentivized to mark everything as a COVID death. Do you know much about that? I actually don't. Um, let me make sure that I understand what I, so basically um, thinking that, that the COVID positive cases may be overstated um, because of an incentive hospitals or healthcare systems have to, to report positive cases. Is that, am I, am I stating yeah. that correctly? Yeah. So his example is like, if somebody got hit by a bus and they had COVID then they would mark it as a COVID death because the hospitals get some extra money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I'm not familiar with, with the position piece. Um, but, but I, you know, there is, there was a, a bill passed that I'm sure you're familiar with. Most Americans are called the CARES Act, um, which essentially does create funding, not just for healthcare organizations, but part of it is for healthcare. Um, and, and that that's correct. Part of it is to, to help, kind of create, um, you know, uh, the ability for healthcare providers with all of these unexpected expenses connected with it, uh, with COVID to, to be able to cover their costs. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's fair to assume that, that the incentive is there to make sure we're reporting, um, you, you know, all of the cases uh, that exist. Um, uh, you know, that, that said, um, most healthcare organizations through COVID have actually struggled significantly um, as a result of, you know, canceling elective surgeries um, and, and, and a host of, you know, other things. Somehow, you know, um, emergency room volumes have plummeted, for example, which seems a little strange because you would think, well, these are emergencies and, and you know, COVID wouldn't necessarily disrupt that, but somehow they have. <laughs> and so anyway, yeah, I heard it, that a lot of doctors have been getting fired lately. Yep. And, and, and I, you know, I, I think most, I think what you see across the system is healthcare organizations with volumes that have plummeted, trying to figure out how do we, how do we make ends meet? And, um, and so you do see lots of healthcare organizations furloughing employees, um, kind of anticipating these volumes to return, um, many of which will, but to be really honest, hopefully some of which will not. I, 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 think, um, I think because we have access to healthcare the way we do, um, I, I do think some of the healthcare that gets utilized and the costs that, that, that derive from it, um, you know, are again, a bit of culture and a bit of habit to us that we do that. And and I'd say another thing that we've seen through COVID is, is a surprising decline in, in some volumes that I don't think we anticipated, you know, going away, but, but somehow they have. And, and it's certainly impacted the way people utilize the healthcare system. And so it'll be interesting to watch over the coming uh, weeks and months here how, how things re- rebound or not from, uh, from pre-COVID uh, uh, states. How does the state of Utah look with COVID? So the state of Utah, um, you know, as we, as we think about um, what what is the what is the goal with COVID? What are we trying to do here to be successful? The the real goal is is to do what I would consider to be uh, a, a create a slow burn of the disease. Meaning the goal is not no one's going to get, or the reasonable goal is not that no one's going to get COVID-19. There's no way that can happen. We need to function as a society. We have to have food. We have to, you know, things need to continue to move forward. And so really all of the, the, the wearing of masks and the social distancing are really an effort to help us slow the spread of the disease, um, really with, with two things in mind. Uh, first of all, I think the worst case scenario that, that uh, we saw in communities back during the Spanish flu, and we've seen in some communities uh, uh, you know, across the United States, 
are what I would call, you know, a, a, a massive surge event of the disease where, um, where, you know, highly concentrated areas infect lots and lots of people and suddenly the healthcare system is completely overwhelmed, right? And you've got patients in hallways and we don't have ventilators. I mean, there were just horrific stories coming from, you know, France is one that comes to mind actually, um, that, um, you know, just, just really, really tragic stories of people having to make decisions about, does this person get the ventilator and maybe live or this person? Cause we're out of ventilators. This mm-hmm. is it. And so part of it is trying to, to slow the spread of the disease to prevent a massive surge. And, and then, um, the other kind of big part of the social distancing is really kind of holding off as long as we can, because at some point we will have, and, and, you know, I'm sure listeners and, and you've read lots about kind of the, the, the notion of herd immunity, that you've had enough people who have, who have antibodies, who have, you know, um, contracted the disease and recovered. Um, and, and what happens is, is you kind of reach that state without hitting a COVID or what, without hitting a massive surge. Uh, actually, overall, the community becomes better off and, and, and the risk drops of, of the disease spreading as rapidly uh, as it would previously. And then at some point, we will have a vaccine that there will be, um, uh, you know, call it a cure. Vaccine's probably a better word, but, but a way to combat this through, um, through medications and other treatments. Um, we're likely a ways off from that. But, but anyway, so coming back specifically to your question, I think Utah's done a pretty nice job. I, I think we've had a couple of, of pockets of outbreaks, but overall, you know, the most recent uh, number or, or date that I've heard when we anticipate a peak is, is somewhere in November. And, and, and you know, if, if, if I were to rewind back to March when things really took off with this, uh, when this really started taking off in March, um, you know, kind of the, the worst uh, projections or models had us hitting a climax initially somewhere mid-April. Um, and so we were gearing up. We had all sorts of plans in place as, as healthcare organizations coming together across the state to be prepared for that. And as we social distance and, and as we, you know, tried to follow the guidelines that at least slow that spread, that, that climax date went from kind of mid-April to mid-May and then to July and August, and again, as recently as today, you know, the projections that I'm hearing are somewhere in November. And so the image to have in your mind as you think about that is, is a bell curve, right? The, the disease is going to spread. Mm-hmm. And, and what you're trying to do is just drag that. You want a long, slow curve, which will maintain capacity in the healthcare system for those who are most vulnerable, those who need, you know, the most intense care. Um, and really spread out the the, uh, the the spread of the disease. So overall, I, I'd say Utah's done a pretty good job, um, and, and I think um, our our government and community leaders have done a nice job helping, um, you know, keep an eye towards the economy, which is obviously, you know, in many ways more important, if not equally as important, um, as as kind of what we're dealing with on the health side. Both contribute to overall health. Um, and so, um, so I think we've done a good job. Long answer to say, I think we've done a good job. <laughs> yeah, I think so. We weren't shut down for too long. Do you think we're going to end up going back to code yellow or code uh, red? Um, yeah, it's hard to say at this point. Um, I, what, I, what I think I would encourage listeners to kind of gear up for based on, you know, the conversations that I'm in and, and some of the data modeling that, I, that, that I'm exposed to is um, that, that I don't think uh, we'll kind of return to what I'll call normalcy uh, for potentially a very long time, maybe well into next year. Um, and, and so what, what that means is we may kind of off and on see us bouncing back and forth, you know, between yellow and orange. I'd be surprised at this point and and I'm going to superstitiously knock on wood here. Um, I'd be surprised at this point if we actually did, um, you know, end up in a red phase, uh, you know, over the next couple of months. Doesn't mean that it, it couldn't happen. It certainly could. But I, I think what we'll see, at, like, for example, as schools start up again, we may see, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, school systems or, or universities or, or whatever getting creative about how many people come on campus or class sizes or, um, you know, allowing students to come 
and, until, you know, someone at the school or someone in the grade, uh, you know, is associated with someone who has COVID. And then they may, you know, kind of ask that class or whatever to not come in for a couple of weeks, right? I, I think we may see more strategic and deliberate um, kind of social distancing or quarantine activity uh, than we've seen. Um, but, but it, you know, it, it'll be a long time, I think, before we're all comfortably, you know, going to sporting events or concerts or things like that again. I, I think we're, we're, we're lots of months away from, uh, from being in that, uh, that environment again. Yeah, I'm just glad that they're at least doing the NBA again, even though it'll be without with empty arenas. But yeah, I uh, I saw a tweet uh, earlier today. Uh, oh, I can't even remember who it was from, but it was uh, apparently in New Zealand. Uh, they have started uh, playing soccer again and, and allowing uh, people to come come watch the sporting events. And and the tweet was something to the effect of. You know, this is you know, live sports is the reward for for following social distancing rules and and guidelines because New Zealand hasn't had a, a, an active COVID case for three weeks, and so it was, you know, uh, kind of giving a shout out that this this is the prize for all of the effort we've had of trying to <laughs> kind of decrease the yeah, spread. Yeah, they of definitely COVID. did a really good job with that because they, I mean, they are an island, which certainly makes it easier, but yeah, they haven't had any co- cases for a while. Yep, yep. It, really impressive for sure. Lots of lots of good examples, really all across the world of of countries and cultures who who have handled it really well. I mean, you look at a country like Taiwan, for example. Is I, I think another really solid example that they they kind of culturally knew what to do, and, and in fact, often wear masks anyway, even outside of this, and and so kind of ramped up that activity and carried on with somewhat normal life and, and did, you know, an unbelievable job uh, helping control the spread. So anyway, definitely pockets of, of really, um, really interesting examples of how social distancing helps. It'll definitely be interesting to just see how the cases go from here on out, because I always kind of found it amusing, but so I live in Utah County and in South Utah County, like Payson, Santa Quinn, Spanish Fork, those guys never wore masks at any point during this lockdown. Yeah. They, they were just doing whatever they wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, at, well, and I think I saw a headline today, didn't I, about a, a meatpacking plant uh, down in Utah County that actually had a rash of COVID cases. So, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, um, you know, I, I certainly um, respect people's decision to, to do what they, they want to do. Um, but, but it is, again, things are complex. I guess that's the moral of today's story. I'm coming back to that. You know, this is a complex one because it, you know, people's choices do affect other people and can mm-hmm. affect other people in negative ways. Um, I saw an interesting example actually earlier today about, um, about you know, kind of going back. I think a lot of people uh, struggle with the recommendation uh, to, to wear masks, as you've called out here. Um, but if you were to go back and gosh, I'm going to get even the decade wrong here, but was it the seventies when there was a big push towards seatbelts as, as kind of a public safety and public health really, um, you know, priority, what, uh, the, the, the graph that I was looking at basically showed the number of, of deaths per, per thousand or per million. I can't remember what it was related to, to, to car accidents, um, uh, relative to the numbers of, of miles driven. And what you saw is basically, you know, this dramatic decrease over the last 30 years of number, number of deaths, I think it's death per vehicle mile or something like that. But, but anyway, right. And, and part of it's because we all wear seatbelts. Now we climb in a car and we put a seatbelt on, uh, you know, my parents' generation and certainly the generation before that, that was unheard of. You didn't climb in a car and put a, a seatbelt on. And I think for most of us now, the thought of that is, almost unheard of right it's like well no of course you put your seatbelt on it like Mm -hmm. it really will save your life or it can save your life um and and we're okay with that we understand now the impact that it has and it's pretty clear and visible and so it'll be interesting with some of these kind of social distancing practices or even the you know the, the the wearing of masks and things like that how much of that will see stick around in a similar way um you know, just to, to help slow the spread of, of various diseases. So anyway, yeah. an interesting example. Definitely. 
So with COVID, um, how did COVID affecting healthcare systems we talked about? What are some of the other things that'll happen in the future of healthcare that you're kind of projecting out or that you envision might happen just in the next maybe decade or two? Yeah. Yep. So, so let me, yeah, thanks for bringing us back to that. Actually, I want to make sure we kind of close the loop out on some of the, the areas we started. So, you know, I kind of laid out there, you've got health insurance companies, you've got providers and you've got patients and in, in the fee for service world, which still is the predominant uh, kind of uh, kind of model that exists. Um, the economic incentive for providers is to do more. The more cases, the more volume, the better. We've seen that through COVID. That's why so many healthcare systems are struggling, honestly, is despite the fact that we've dramatically decreased how much healthcare we use um, because of that, because there's no volume, uh, you know, coming to clinics or hospitals or whatever, uh, we see hospitals and clinics really, really suffering from, from that fact. And you see insurance companies in this model that um, are doing unbelievably well. I mean, we, we read about, um, you know, some of the large national payers that, I mean, honestly, that they're like trying to figure out how to get rid of money because they have so much right now. They're going out and buying up practices and doing all sorts of things because they have so much money through this COVID thing. And it really doesn't look good. Um, and it's, it's not really their fault. It's just the nature of the way the model works. And so when we talk about what are the next five years look like, what are the next 10 years look like, at least from my perspective, what do I hope they look like? I hope we see deeper partnerships between providers and payers. I hope we see more creative ways to pay for care that are not just focused on doing more, doing more and therefore getting paid more. But actually, I hope we start to see a, a, a much greater incentive around doing the right thing and investing in, in services that right now may not be very lucrative businesses, but that actually are unbelievably important to our health. Like things like prevention is a good example of that. There's no real market for prevention in a fee-for-service world. Healthcare industry would, they do better financially when people are sick. And, you know, uh, you know, reputable organizations like Intermountain Healthcare um, are, are fortunately, you know, really outspoken about the fact that they're in this to help people live healthy lives. They want to move into a world that their revenue stream is not because people are sick, but because people are healthy, people are living good lives. And, and that's got to come from getting more creative ways to incentivize the right care, the right time, the right place, as opposed to just more. In fact, I'll give you, you know, one other example that really plagues our society today is, um, and that's mental health. Um, you know, if, if we were to look at a mental health business, company, service line, whatever you want, in a fee-for-service world, meaning, you know, how much is a psychiatrist or psychologist, um, you know, getting paid to, you know, see patients? The answer is relatively very little. There, there's, you know, it's, we, we don't have great access for mental health providers because it's not a lucrative business. It's not like, um, to, to pick on some specialists here, it's not like orthopedic surgery. It's not like spine surgery. It's not like some of these, these other cases. And so the money goes there. That's very, very lucrative and very, very expensive business. A knee replacement or hip replacement today is $30,000, right? It's a car. It's a nice car. Wow. Um, and, and, and people, those are surgeries people get all the time, right? I mean, it's it's like um, going to get your hair done in some community. <laughs> I mean, lots of people are getting knees and hips replaced, and it's very expensive. Whereas, um, you know, mental health, good access to mental health providers for people struggling with all sorts of things, it, it's access is hard. The re the payment associated with it is very low, and so what you see is historically in fee for service models, healthcare systems can't really invest in that service, you know, unless it's a mission driven thing, it's certainly not a lucrative, uh, you know, business to be in. But what you see is as organizations start to look at different models of care saying, what does this patient need? Or what does this population need? What you see is deeper investment in things like prevention, in things like uh, behavioral health, mental health. And the reason for that is 
investing in someone's mental health can go a long way for their physical health. Suddenly they can get out and exercise, right? Some of the things we talked about earlier that I know it sounds a little Pollyanna, a little pie in the sky, but it is the truth. If, if we're taking care of our bodies, we will have, you know, generally speaking, much lower healthcare costs and, and, and mental health can be a major contributor for good in that regard to just help enable people. Um, you know, with, if you struggle with depression or if you struggle with anxiety, which are very real, and, and very kind of tangible, um, you know, diseases for people that that can have an impact on every other part of your life, your ability to work, your ability to maintain relationships, your ability to do all these things. And if we can get better help, better access in, in, in that one area, I'm just picking one example here, um, you know, the, the, the impact is huge, but we're not going to get there until we start to see some changes in the way that, you know, the funding works and the way the incentives uh, flow through the system. And one kind of cool thing that's happened recently too is we've in certain states the opioid crisis and mental health has improved too. But specifically, the opioid crisis has gone away just with making weed legal because that just covers so many of the other bases and can solve for so many different ailments that people have. Yeah, the, the opioid epidemic has been a really, really interesting one, and, and the history of it's actually really interesting as well. Um, and, and, and so it is. I mean, there are all sorts of you know incredible ways that that we can use data, we can use economics, and and in some cases, like your example, we can use policy to to really help find solutions that again are hopefully long-term solutions, not a squeeze the balloon here and create other problems over here, but things that are, are real solutions. Um, and, and, you know, really that kind of allow us to enable our physicians and providers who are very bright and, and, you know, with very few exceptions, have the patient's best interests in mind that are subjected to this economic framework that really doesn't enable them to, to, to you know, do what they largely got in medicine to do, which is just care for patients the way they need to be cared for. And so, um, anyway. Okay. I have one last question for you. Sure. If you, do you foresee any chance, like if you had to put a percentage chance that this would happen of the United States ever adopting like a Medicare for all or single payer healthcare system for the entire country? If I had to put a percentage on that, man, am I going to be held accountable to, to this percentage? You're gonna <laughs> I'm just wondering if there's any years? chance. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, there's no way I can say that there's no chance. Obviously, you know, with the upcoming election um, and, and I think you've got a lot of um, a lot of uh, Americans who, um, you know, I, I actually want to be sensitive to not fault them here because because it's it's really not a fault. But the lens through which they see the world, and and the interactions that they have, their perspective, which is rightfully their perspective, um, you know, suggests that that is the right solution, and they're they're actually not wrong for taking that position. Uh, it's important they recognize that is their position though, and that there are certainly um, kind of other lenses and frameworks to look at that 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 may not be the best solution. But I, I think obviously a lot rides on who's in the White House, who gets elected. And, um, you know, certainly um, with enacting Medicare, um, you know, decades ago, I, I think that was certainly a, a major, major step in the direction. And, and, and then obviously with the passing of the Affordable Care Act, I mean, we're definitely seeing kind of marginal steps in that direction. Um, and, and so will we be there someday? We might. Um, and is that in 10 years or 50 years? I don't know. To me, that's probably maybe the, the bigger question is, is how long and, and what does America look like, uh, you know, in that time to, to really advance that conversation? You know, personally, what, what I hope is, is um, that, that the market can find better ways to create the access to create healthcare or to create a more affordable healthcare environment so that those who, who maybe, you know, can't afford it today have better optionality. And, you know, personally, my, my personal kind of views here kind of seeping in a little bit, I, I would love to see the market be nimble and come up with some solutions that can at least postpone that conversation 
Um, and uh, but you know, again, I, I think we'll see. And I think the great thing about living in a in a free country the way that we do is people can speak their mind and, and people can elect uh, you know uh, leaders that, that share their perspectives. And so I, I think the American people will speak and and will will continue to kind of watch this this conversation evolve. So yeah, definitely. Well, I think I speak for myself and all my listeners that definitely learned a lot from you today. Uh, it was great having you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Hey, it's it's my pleasure. I appreciate the the chance to share some thoughts with you. Hopefully, they're they're helpful in some way. So.